Welcome to the Woven Roots Fiber Podcast. Woven Roots, the Appalachian Fiber Story Project, is an initiative of the Community Farm Alliance to tell the story of how fiber farming, arts, and entrepreneurship in Appalachian, Kentucky can contribute to a bright future in the mountains. I'm your host, Sam Hamlin. Appalachians have a rich history of growing plant and animal fibers to make the most basic of human necessities, such as clothes, shoes, and rope, to spinning fiber to weave together beautiful quilts, tapestries, and rugs. While many fibers are now made from synthetic materials, there is a movement growing to return to natural fiber textile production. Natural fibers that come from plants and animals, such as flax, canaf, hemp, wool, and alpaca fleece, can produce fine quality textiles right in our backyard in ways that aren't harmful to our environment. Supporting the natural fiber sector benefits community farmers as well as the health of our planet. We're looking forward to bringing you stories from farmers, producers, artisans, and others who are building our region's fiber sector to benefit our people and our planet. In this episode, we talk about hemp, one of Kentucky's most famous crops. We'll hear about hemp from a couple of different perspectives. First, we travel over to Pine Mountain Settlement School in Harlan County to hear from Assistant Director Preston Jones about their new hemp project and the history of natural fibers at the school. Then, we'll hear about Kentucky's first hempcrete house from Christopher Dunn, who works with the North Limestone Community Development Corporation in Lexington, Kentucky. Thanks for listening in to the Woven Roots Fiber Podcast, your place for Appalachian fiber stories. Over the last few years, there has been a huge buzz about the potential for the revival of industrial hemp, which is one of Kentucky's oldest crops. According to the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, industrial hemp is a variety of cannabis sativa and is of the same plant species of marijuana. However, hemp is genetically different and is distinguished by its use and chemical makeup. Industrial hemp refers to cannabis varieties that are primarily grown as agricultural crops. Hemp plants are low in THC, marijuana's primary psychoactive chemical. Hemp growth in Kentucky dates back to the late 1700s. According to the Kentucky Department of Agriculture, Kentucky was the leading hemp-producing state in the mid-19th century, producing up to 40,000 tons in 1850. Hemp, along with flax and wool, were all used as primary sources for textile production. With the criminalization of marijuana in the 1930s, hemp production was also made illegal. It was not until the 2014 Farm Bill that industrial hemp could be legally produced with a license. However, farmers and processors face unique hurdles in hemp production due to the strict regulations of the crop. Industrial hemp plants, including the stock, floral, and seeds, remain a controlled substance under state and federal law which means that no person can grow, handle, or process industrial hemp in the state without a license from the Kentucky Department of Agriculture. For more information on laws and regulations around industrial hemp growth, see the Kentucky Department of Agriculture's website at www.kyagr.com. Despite the regulations, the 2014 Farm Bill paved the way for farmers to produce hemp for fiber and textiles, medication in the form of CBD oil, grain, and food products such as hemp hearts, and much more. The possibilities for hemp uses are endless. In this episode, for example, we'll explore how hemp can be used in the creation of hempcrete, a limestone-like product that can be used to insulate houses. But we start out the episode in Harlan County with the Pine Mountain Settlement School. We hear from Preston Jones, assistant director of the settlement school, who talks about the first year of hemp production at Pine Mountain and how they are viewing the possibilities of hemp to help farmers in eastern Kentucky diversify their production to create high-quality, value-added products for niche markets. I'm Preston Jones, and I'm the assistant director at Pine Mountain Settlement School. We are a nonprofit environmental education community outreach center in Harlan County, Kentucky. And I've been here for about three years. 
some of the work that we're actively engaged in that uh, may be of interest is our community agriculture program, which includes free workshops, free garden inputs, free tools, market assistance, a lot of different resources uh, that we have available for community gardeners at no cost. A significant part of that going into this year is going to be our commercial kitchen that we are actually getting ready to start renovation on one of the old buildings to install that. We already have a lot of equipment and we have plans to to get some more here within the next few weeks and um, hopefully have that up and running by spring so that people can come and produce high quality value-added products that can be sold anywhere and you know relating to the fiber which we'll talk about here in a second our view of the most profitable and the most logical you know production systems in eastern kentucky are small scale high value and niche market you know that's kind of what we teach and kind of what we believe in here and you know we we teach it and we talk about it but we also demonstrate it on our farm we have about five acres in production right now historically the farm at one point was up to 25 acres i believe and had large herds uh, beef cattle dairy dairy cows at one time over 800 hens i've been told at one point and you know we've over the last couple of years tried to get back into those different things and to not only so that we can enjoy the harvests and the benefits of those for ourselves and for our visitors all the food that we grow on campus we serve out to our visitors through workshops and school groups and different things like that but also to model that to the community as a potential way for economic development the settlement school here has a long history well in the community for around a lot of things but specifically also a long history around fiber production and weaving mm-hmm. i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of that mm-hmm. history here yeah definitely so the school was founded in 1913 Catherine pettit ethel delong and uh, william creech are the co-founders of the school Catherine pettit in particular she was an agronomist and also an avid weaver. We actually have her plant-based dye book in our archives. It's really neat. And so anyway, throughout the history of the school from its foundation, weaving and growing flax and possibly hemp, I'm not, I've not been able to verify that 100%, but I've been told you know, that they did grow hemp at some point, and sheep. So we we definitely have the history of of flax and wool and possibly hemp. And we still have a lot of the old equipment. We still have the old flax break and we have over 20 looms. Several are historic and several are newer. So weaving and fiber production has been a part of the school from the foundation and carries through to today and we we no longer have sheep i think the sheep left pine mountain in the late 80s early 90s we would love to have some sheep or fiber goats or something like that again and that's hopefully within the near future you know we do have hemp now Um, we're looking at possibly growing some flax or jute something like that to incorporate into the workshops that we still do we have visiting school groups that come Thousands of students come from all over the place each year to experience uh, what we have here. And a part of one of the classes that they take is weaving. So we, we take the kids into the weaving room. We have, I think, over 20 looms in there. And, and they get to sit down and they get to get to go through the full process and experience that. And can you say a little bit more, I mean, you spoke to some of what y'all have going on today around fiber, but can you speak a little bit more to that and specifically what are you doing around hemp and why y'all decided to do it? Yeah, so we decided, you know, with the hemp to go with a small scale fiber production. And the reason for that is we looked at different types of hemp. We looked at CBD, we looked at grain, and we looked at fiber. And we and then we also looked at what we were already doing here at the school and, and what was historic to the school and what we believed to be a good potential revenue stream for our farmers that we're already working with on small-scale, high-value, you know, fruit and vegetable production and value-added products. And so we felt like it was a good fit, and we felt like it was a, a pretty straightforward 
process. You know, a lot of the CBD varieties are proprietary and for us anyway have been a little difficult to get a hold of. The genetics there and a lot of the companies that hold those want, you know, you have to have an upfront contract and we were pretty small production. So, you know, a lot of them didn't really want to full with us and you know that's another thing that I think could potentially be a good fit is high value organically produced uh, CBD crops but the fiber is what we went with we felt like it was the easiest to start with and the easiest to get seed for and also like I said it fit with the history of fiber production and just the self-sufficiency of the, the Appalachian people and our goal was to have a small demonstration plot to show people how to grow it and how to harvest it and how to process it and we've grown it and we've harvested and now it's actually in the redding process and here within the next few weeks we will attempt to weave or to make some kind of product with it we've got a few things that we're playing around with and a few ideas and we're excited to see what we make this year and then you know we will use that as a model and a demonstration to the community it's not something that we're going to hold on to and not share with anybody we want to we're open we want to show people the full process from beginning to end and then not only how to make something but how to market that and so our gift shop is is a guaranteed buyer of local crafts and those types of value-added goods and you know we're going to be doing some market training workshops and some different things like that in the coming year that hopefully will help people be able to sell those and to get a premium price for what they do make. So that's kind of where we are right now on it. You mentioned that the hemp that you all grew is in the redding process. Mm -hmm. Would you mind saying a little more for listeners who may not be familiar with what that means? What happens in brief once you put the seed in the ground and the stalk grows? What happens from there to do small scale harvesting? Right. So right now we have when we harvested the stalks a few weeks ago, we laid them out on the ground in the field, and so the redding process is pretty much just the natural decomposition of the stalk. And so there are two different fibers. There's bast and herb fibers in the hemp stalk. And so what you want, you want to separate those fibers. You want the outer fibers, which are the longer fibers um, for weaving and for rope making, things like that. Uh, the inner fibers are, are useful as well. And there's a lot of different neat products that I've seen that are coming along out there that they use those for. But we're going to focus on uh, the traditional method. And so what we'll do after that, you have to monitor the moisture and turn the crop occasionally to make sure that it's evenly decomposing. And we're looking for those outer fibers to come off easily and to stay intact for the length of the stem. It's all new to us. It's like I said, it's been a big experiment from beginning to end. We're learning as we go. And you know, that's one thing that's unfortunate about, you know, just what's happened with hemp in Kentucky. You know, at one time hemp was the leading crop in Kentucky and Kentucky was out in the forefront of the industry and had some of the best genetics and the best equipment and all the knowledge and you know we've lost every bit of that for the most part and just in the last few years after the farm bill made a way for this program to happen have we begun to relearn all that has been lost you know, there's not a ton of information out there for small-scale production especially. So we're just kind of feeling our way through it and, you know, experience is the best way to learn. One more question I have is there's been a lot of buzz about hemp over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. about the potential of hemp to change the economy in, in eastern Kentucky in particular. What, in your perspective, is the future of hemp in eastern Kentucky? What I see as the two most viable ways that hemp can contribute significantly to the economy in Eastern Kentucky is number one, through high value, organic or naturally grown CBD crops, CBD variety. And the reason I say these options that I'm gonna say here are because in Eastern Kentucky we're limited acreage wise for you know in, in regard to prime farmland when you're looking at central and western kentucky you know the, the gotta speak on farmland just quantity and quality 
and also just experience and the equipment that a lot of, as I'm saying, a lot of former tobacco farmers and big farmers already have the equipment. They already have the investments there. And so what I see is most viable is high value CBD. Again, niche market, either organic or naturally grown or just super high quality you know, in a high tunnel or, or something that just steps the quality up and premium branding somehow maybe through tying it to place and tying it to Appalachia. And then the same is true for the for the fiber, you know, small scale, high value fiber that will go into kind of niche market value added products. And that's where, you know, we're still trying to figure out what exactly those products are going to be. We've got, we've got a number of ideas, and that's what we hope to do with this workshop. And over the next few weeks is to test some of these out and to see what is best for, you know, for people to make without a lot of investment. Not everybody's going to be able to go buy. I don't even know how much that would cost a new loom or the equipment that would be necessary to create, like, a really fine, finished garment or material so we we've got a few kind of rough processed really neat ideas that i think could potentially be something that people would be interested in producing and then just that development of the market that's going to need to take place and finding a way to to get the best price for these products finally you mentioned the workshop that's coming up um, that y'all are holding would you say a little bit more about when that is and what y'all are going to do there yeah sure so that will be part of our fall color weekend the weaving workshop will go on from friday the 20th through saturday the 21st and we have on staff really talented weaver megan epperson who is the primary instructor on all of our weaving classes for the school children and for adult visitors that come and want to do the weaving. And so we're working with her right now to kind of tune her to, to him because we're, you know, we're mostly doing wool as of right now. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge to adapt to this new fiber, but I think we've made some good progress. We've got some good ideas and, and we're looking forward to that. Awesome. Finally, could you just say if folks want to learn more about Pine Mountain Settlement School and what y'all are up to, where can they find you? You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and also our website, which is pinemountainsettlementschool.com. Additionally, we do have an archive website. If you're interested in the history of the school, you can check out pinemountainsettlement.net. We're getting ready to relaunch and put everything under one umbrella, but those are the two websites that you can go to. And if you're interested in the fiber history of the settlement school, that archive website would be the place to go. And uh, there's tons of photographs, tons of original documents that are scanned in and available on there. And I think Catherine Pettit's dye book is actually on there too. So if people want to check that out, they can take a look. I recommend it. I just was looking through there the other day. It's very cool. Do you have any final things you'd like to add? Well, I really do think that what we're trying here could potentially be a great piece of a you know small-scale, highly diversified, sustainable farm in eastern Kentucky. And uh, that's what we're working on, and that's what we're trying to model here. And uh, if we can take it on and we can learn and we can commit the investment up front, as in we, as in Pine Mountain Settlement School, we can learn how to do this and then show people how to do it, then I think we'll start to see some people that take it and run with it. Next, we travel to Lexington to talk with Christopher Nunn, Director of Design and Construction at the North Limestone Community Development Corporation. The North Limestone CDC initiated a project to build Kentucky's first ever hemp house with walls made of Kentucky-grown hemp creep. Chris shares information about how the project came about, possibilities for hemp houses, and affordable housing construction, and dreams and possibilities for the Kentucky hemp sector overall. My name is Christopher Nunn. My title is I'm the Director of Design and Construction for the North Limestone Community Development Corporation. We are a 501c3 nonprofit community development corporation. Our mission is to help connect neighbors to resources and opportunities within this neighborhood to try and promote equitable community development. 
we have sort of three tenets, affordable housing, community and cultural initiatives, and economic opportunity. I manage our housing and design and construction, you know, all aspects of, of our work that it involves some aspect of design or construction I get involved in. My background's in architecture. I'm not a licensed architect, but I'm getting there. And so I came to this really wanting to be able to use design as a tool to address sort of cultural and social issues that, you know, the way that you build a neighborhood affects the way that people move and operate in the neighborhood. Could you say just a little bit about what have you all done with this house and what makes it special? So what we've done is, as you can tell, it's a shotgun style house, very similar in dimensions and layout to the house next door, which is another shotgun house. The difference here is that we have modified the structure to make the walls thicker. So the walls are a foot thick instead of six inches thick to create the thickness of hempcrete that has really been tested and tried and true. This foot thick wall is about R28, which the house next door, the pink fiberglass insulation is R19. So this is about 50% better than the house next door in terms of R value, which is resistance to thermal change. So if it's cold outside and warm in, inside, that wall will prevent those temperatures from equalizing. We have created basically a double stud structure where there's a stud on the outside, stud on the inside, and the whole thing is filled in with hemp. It's the walls and the roof, and basically what you do is you mix it just like you mix cement. You dump the hemp and the lime and the water into a mixer, and it mixes up into a, the right consistency, and you pack it into forms, not unlike concrete. Basically, you have plywood on either side that holds it in place while you're packing it, and then once it's packed, you can take the forms off and it stays, and it dries out. It takes It's been drying for about a month to let the moisture get out of it because it's so thick and once it gets down to a certain moisture percentage, then you can proceed with finishing and you know putting siding on and everything. So the, the moisture has all dissipated out of the hemp. And after you mix it, those components, the lime and the silica in the hemp, mix the water as a catalyst for that chemical reaction and it basically turns into a crystalline structure, not unlike limestone that basically takes a natural product, a biodegradable product, and turns it into an inert product, which is the hempcrete. So it won't rot, won't burn, bugs won't eat it, it's hypoallergenic. Some people say it's carbon neutral because of all of the carbon that's sequestered in the hemp. Annie Rouse, who I'm working closely with on this project, has done some research and she says that it's not actually carbon neutral or carbon positive because of all of the fossil fuels burned to plant it, harvest it, transport it, process it. So the product itself may have carbon sequestered in it, but that's offset by all of the carbon emitted in taking it from a seed to what you see here. In any case, it is at least a natural product. If you were to knock this over and put it in the dirt, over time it would biodegrade. So the only reason why it doesn't biodegrade here is because it's kept dry, it's kept out of contact with the earth. It would break down, unlike all of the styrofoams, you know, all the foams that you see that have a half-life of a thousand years, all the styrofoam cups that will be here long, long after we're gone. So that's another thing, that trying to figure out how you touch the earth as lightly as you can. This technique has been used for hundreds of years. I mean, there are bridges in France that are made of hempcrete that date back to the ninth century, and they're still standing. So this is not a new high-tech concept. Trying to bring it back as an application, I think, is an interesting concept. But the other side of the coin is that there's pleasure that we get out of the places that we live. I grew up in a very unique house, and I feel like it really shaped my character and made me very proud of place, proud to show off where I come from. And I think with something like this, you know, we were talking about, are we going to expose the hemp? And I think ideally it would be exposed so that people co who come over here can touch it and smell it and they can tell that it sounds different in here and you know thermally it feels different and you come in it smells different you know it smells like hemp and it has a very sort of clean smell to it I feel like all of those things are part of the sort of sensory experience of this house and those aren't necessarily things that you design when you're drawing a house but I think at the end of the day those are the really memorable impactful things where if it's not as echoey because the hemp absorbs a lot of the sound or because it smells cleaner so it doesn't have that chemically smell of paint or carpet or whatever, I feel like those are really important aspects as well because not only the way that they positively impact your health, but also they really imprint in your brain an experience that creates nostalgia. And it's 
the same reason why when I tell people about, you know, the sound of the rain falling on the tin roof, everyone to the last person is like, oh, that reminds me of my grandma's farm when I was a kid. If you just make something that looks like everything else, then no one thinks that it takes a special effort to try and promote or preserve or advance. Making something unique, I feel like, gives you the opportunity to really say, this is special and it's worth fighting for and it's worth, you know, I mean, you saw when you got here, I was packing hemp up in these little spaces and people come up, man, that looks really tedious. It's like, yeah, but all we have is time. And if we spend it doing something that we care about and think is important, then at the end of the day, you don't feel like, Phew, that was a waste. You feel like, all right, that made a difference. Hopefully this little project, in the best of all worlds, could be the tail wagging the dog of advancing the conversation of how to build with hemp in Kentucky and nationally. Did you say now that this project with this hemp house, is it part of a larger project? Yes. The North Limestone CDC got a grant in 2013 to build artist housing. And it was, like most grants, not terribly thought through. It was like, oh, we should do this. We should apply for this grant. And we got it. We got $425,000 from Art Place, and we spent about half of that on 18 properties on this street. There were a bunch of vacant and condemned houses that were all owned by three or four owners, and so we approached them all, and they were ready to wash their hands of them because they were getting cited by the city code violations and things. So we bought 18 properties, which is about 40% of this street, and we completed the first phase, which is six houses. We completed that last year, and those are all affordable. They're all shotgun houses, either one or two bedroom houses, and we sold those all for $80,000, which was, we actually took a loss on that because we wanted to demonstrate that we had the ability to build something that was the first thing that the CDC had ever built. A lot of our lenders were very cautious about how much they would lend us, and now that we've shown that we can make good on a loan and pay back the loans, we now are able to borrow more. So now we're building nine units, five of which are affordable for our market rate, and they're basically, the market rates and the affordables are intermingled, so it's not like the affordable ones are in one group and the market rates are in the other, it basically alternates every other. And for me, again, not that it's social engineering, but trying to make sure that people understand that everybody deserves the same quality. So you won't see on the affordable units that they have cheaper materials or that they're smaller or that they're less energy efficient or less interesting. It's really a case where you understand that everybody's circumstances are different. So this hemp house is one of the nine that we're building in our second phase of construction. And this is certainly our one of our most unique and I've spent the most time on it trying to make sure that it gets done right and managing it. Whereas the other more traditionally built ones, the contractor, Crawford Builders, really just takes it and runs with it. So I think we've had a lot of great support from, from people. We've gotten donations from Home Depot. We've gotten donations from, I mean, we've got a whole list of, of people that supported us, Sunstrand, Atalo, KYHIA, the Kentucky Hemp Research Foundation. There's a bunch of people that are really interested in seeing this flourish, and we're very grateful for their support. We actually just got a donation from a manufacturer called Prosico which makes a material that will paint on the outside of this house. Basically, it keeps the air out so that it's sort of like a raincoat for the, for the building. So it keeps the, the water out, keeps the air from flowing through, but it lets the hemp breathe. They donated $6,000 worth of material because they wanted to show their support for this sort of innovation. You know, those sorts of things I'm always very grateful for because people wouldn't donate that if it was just a market rate unit. If you were just trying to make money, they would have no incentive to donate it. But because it's an affordable unit, because we're trying to demonstrate how to bring hemp back, I think a lot of people are interested in being a part of that story. I think there's an opportunity to really help other corporations be good partners. The more skeptical people say, well, this is never going to catch on like this. And I, I don't think that it is. I mean, I don't think that this application of hemp is what everybody should be doing. But this is the first step based on the, the systems and the technologies that exist right now. So you're never going to take that second step unless you take the first step. So now that we've built one and we understand how much labor it takes, what the upcharge is compared to a normal house, what the time is, you know, some of the other challenges, then we can look at working with somebody like Sunstrand and producing panels or producing pre-pressed wallboards or buying a sprayer and spraying this in place instead of having to bucket brigade it. 
but no one's ever going to give us a grant if we've never, well, we've never built anything with hemp, but you should give us a grant so we can buy the sprayer. I mean, like, yeah, right. So trying yeah. to have some track record where it gives our future ambitions and future requests some credibility and to say, yeah, we know how to work with this stuff. We understand what the pitfalls are. We understand what the benefits are. I mean, with this material, people say, well, why would you use hemp? And I always say, well, A, the insulation alternatives all have their drawbacks. I mean, the pink fiberglass stuff is basically going to be the next asbestos in terms of causing cancer. The foam board, you know, the rigid foam board that you see, the pink or blue or whatever, that stuff all, the blowing agents, when they extrude that, is all ozone-depleting chemicals. So as it off-gasses over time, it releases all those ozone-depleting chemicals into the air and, you know, causes the, the hole in the ozone to grow. Everything else is exorbitantly expensive. You've got foam glass, you've got uh, denim. Cellulose is probably the best, but cellulose has its issues too in terms of it settles. You have to be very careful about moisture so that it doesn't mold. It's still an organic material, so it can rot, can decompose, bugs can eat it. Whereas with hemp, it's not really susceptible to any of those things. With the insulation, Josh Hendricks always says this is like the sawdust of the hemp world, where if after you extract the fiber or the seed or whatever, you're always going to have this herd left over, this, the stalks left over. And so trying to figure out a usable product from, for that, and you know, a lot of people are looking at using it for animal bedding. Obviously the, the horse industry in the bluegrass region is one of the things it's best known for, and so there is a big demand for this bedding, which is much healthier than straw or wheat or whatever they use right now. Obviously at this point very expensive, but as we produce more, I think the price will come down and become competitive. But I think trying to demonstrate how it could be used in building products would be an incredible boon, just because, like I said, the other insulation alternatives all have their major drawbacks. And really getting back to something that says something about place, that this house couldn't be built in Portland or in Boston or in Wisconsin because hemp is indigenous to, it's not indigenous, it's indigenous to Southeast Asia, but you know, it it can be grown here, the climate is perfect for it. So saying something about place and, and the fact that we're building a shotgun house out of hemp, I think really melds a couple of those sort of fundamental characters of this region. I mean, you don't see shotgun houses in those places either because they're not appropriate to the climate. Whereas here, I mean, we're sitting here and you can feel the breeze just passing through here. And that's why they built shotgun houses was because they ventilated well. Combining that with this locally grown, locally processed material, for me, is what architecture should be about, what construction should be reflecting. We shouldn't be bringing stuff from three, four, eight thousand miles away. We should be getting it from as close as we can. Unfortunately, the way they did it 200 years ago, when they made all the brick on site, and they quarried the stone on site, and basically they made their own lime mortar from the lime that they dug from the ground, and all the timber was milled right on site. I mean, it was really a locally sourced out of necessity. Now we don't have that same necessity, but I think we've lost a lot in terms of our buildings reflecting the climate and the character of a place. You were talking about all the drawbacks of these other forms of insulation. Mm -hmm. Is the major drawback of hemp that it is too expensive to produce right now, or what are the drawbacks? I think the biggest drawback right now is that most contractors operate under the premise that if they know how to do it, they know how to price it. And if they've never done it before, they're going to jack up their price because they want to cover their butts in case it takes four times as long as they thought. So I think they're really the gatekeepers in this at this point. I mean, from a supply standpoint, we have people that can supply the material. It really comes down to having somebody who understands how to work with it and is comfortable with the amount of labor and the amount of time that it takes to get it from the raw materials into having it placed in the building so that it, you can then proceed with all the other stuff. Usually what you do is you call an insulation contractor, they show up, they're done in a day, and you move on. So this 700 square foot house, we cast about almost 2,000 cubic feet of hemp, and it took six days. Yeah. And it took, for three of those days, we had 20 people working all day. And then for the other three days, I had a crew of six people that was helping me insulate the roof. 
So the walls and the roof are both insulated. So you look at just labor costs on that, and the only way that we were able to do it was that for the first two days, we actually had workshop attendees who paid to come do this. And then the remainder, we employed people from the neighborhood who could get their hands dirty. And I feel like that was probably the most successful part of this project so far, is that with all of the sort of cultural discussion about gentrification and displacement, being able to have this project have some impact, some positive impact on folks that otherwise would just walk by and be like, I don't know what that is, doesn't have anything to do with me, all it does is signal that things aren't what they used to be. Now they walk by and they say, yeah, I worked there for three days, and they tell their friends, hey, that's hemp, you can't smoke it, and come and touch it, this is what it is, and they become ambassadors for this concept, which for me makes me very proud that they take pride in having worked on it and having been a part of this first, this sort of innovative idea that was the first in Kentucky. So I think the biggest challenge is finding a contractor who can price it appropriately so that it is not just a luxury that people with disposable income can put toward having something like this. And to be honest, when I started looking at the ones that have been built in the United States, most of them are three, 4,000 square foot houses. They're huge. They're usually well-off people who want the house because of the health benefits. You know, they have a child that has severe asthma or they are really interested in the sort of breathability aspect of, the, of hemp as opposed to other materials. And I think that's wonderful, but I hope that what we're doing gives more people access to that same sort of privilege and not have it just be something that if you have the money and the opportunity, it's this exclusive thing. On that note, would you mind giving a little bit more background on, one, what neighborhood are we in? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you mentioned gentrification. Mm -hmm. And what is the accessibility of these kinds Mm -hmm. of products, these sustainable products that are coming out, hemp products, but also other natural fire products? Yeah, I mean, there's always a cost premium. At one point, there were a number of people that were trying to lure Patagonia here to come start making garments out of hemp. And, you know, a Patagonia shirt is $80. So that's not very accessible. Now, that could potentially create jobs for people in the neighborhood. So I think there's more than just one way of looking at something like that. But in general, this neighborhood, the North Limestone neighborhood, for 100 years, this was very much a manufacturing, working-class neighborhood. There's a train line just north of us here that brought in all the raw materials and then took out all the finished products that were processed here. There was a lot of warehousing, a lot of tobacco, a lot of hemp. And then after World War II, uh, I think nationally there was a shift in terms of how and where business was done and it became much more of a large scale approach as opposed to the finer grained industry that we had seen prior to that. So there was a, a scaling up. And so a lot of the industry, a lot of the jobs moved out to the suburbs. A lot of the housing moved out there as well, and so there became this sort of physical separation of working class from middle class. And obviously the country became much more automobile-centric, and a lot of public transportation went away. So this neighborhood really suffered from those effects after World War II. There was a lot of disinvestment. There was really almost a complete lack of investment in infrastructure. The stormwater in this neighborhood is abysmal and is a big part of why Lexington got sued by the EPA in 2009, or maybe it was before then, and basically they had to sign a consent decree which meant that the city of Lexington agreed with the EPA that they had severe stormwater deficiencies that they now have agreed to remedy. But this neighborhood has terrible flooding, there's very little curb and gutter and, and sidewalks and things like that. So. For the last 70 years or so, it's really been a place that people have lived who couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And now, as the cultural shifts that we're seeing with millennials wanting to live in more urban settings as opposed to suburban settings sort of manifest itself, we're seeing that a lot of a lot of people want to live back in a neighborhood like this. There's really cheap land here because it's been so disinvested. I mean, we bought each of these lots for less than $10,000 a lot which is insane. And there were condemned houses on most of them that we basically had to tear down because they would have been so expensive to renovate. They were all about 100 to 110 years old, and they were built out of whatever scraps of wood that people could find. I mean, it was really remarkable, their resourcefulness and being able to create a structure out of short little boards and scraps of flooring that they turned into walls and 
I think as you look at what happens, those houses have reached their, the end of their useful life. Those hundred-year-old houses that are rotten and termite-eaten and leaning and underbuilt in the first place and built with inferior materials have stood for a hundred years, which is remarkable, but now I think there really needs to be a, an improvement in a lot of the building stock in this neighborhood. As you do that, because construction is expensive, because labor costs have gone up significantly, materials costs have gone up a lot just over the decades, now to build a new house, to even break even at it, is causing property values to go up. So if you have a shotgun house that stood here that you could have bought for, say, twenty-five dollars or $30,000, you could have bought it and you would have had a house, it would have needed a lot of work, but it would have been workable. Now we're building shotgun houses that we're selling for $100,000. And the reality is they're costing us, I mean, the land is about 10000 our construction costs are about ninety, so our break-even is about 100000 So in that circumstance, it's almost completely unattainable to try to build houses at a thirty dollars or $40,000 price point. So the metrics of it working from the construction side, are that's the way they break down. Now you've got people who are you know, living off of disability, they're living off of um, Medicaid, Social Security, child support. I mean, it's incredible the, the way that people cobble together incomes in this neighborhood. But a lot of people are only making seven, $800 a month and trying to you know, feed and support two and three kids or grandkids or great-grandkids, and they can only pay 250 or $300 a month in rent. So trying to figure out how you reconcile those two things, how you give somebody safe, decent, and affordable housing for the price point that they can afford. That's something that I really, I'm always trying to keep our pencil as sharp as possible on that because making money doesn't excite me. I get more excited about seeing how little I can do something for than how much I can make at something. And I think that this hemp house is a perfect example. To do the hemp insulation and all the structure and you know the additional wood framing and all of that was about a $20,000 cost premium. So basically what we're doing is we got a grant from the city's affordable housing fund to create affordable housing. So all of the affordable units that we're creating are deed restricted meaning that they can only sell to people making less than a certain income amount for the next 15 years. And basically, we are selling this house for $90,000, and it's costing us about 110 to build. So we're using that grant from the city so that we can charge 90000 instead of 110000 for this one, because I feel strongly that this one should be something that somebody from the neighborhood could afford. So for $90,000, that's basically about... $600 a month in mortgage and property taxes and all that home insurance all put together. Obviously that's not attainable for a single person on Social Security, but a couple that both are on Social Security or disability or whatever could make that work. You know, I think that it's more a question of trying to get people in a place where they control their own destiny. That's why we're doing home ownership instead of rental, because if you get people into home ownership, then they are the ones that stand to profit if and when they want to sell their house. If you rent and your landlord says, oh, look, the property values have gone way up. I'm going to sell your house. Now you have no say in the matter. And if the next person who buys it wants to double your rent, that's their prerogative. And all they legally have to give you is a 30-day notice and to move out if you don't want to continue renting there. And you're just basically sent packing. It doesn't matter if you've lived here for a year or 20 years. For me, giving people some control over the direction of where they live is what homeownership affords. I think that's a really important component of trying to address the issue of gentrification. There's a couple follow-up questions I want yeah. to ask you. One is you said that this hempcrete is made out of the herd. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the plant can be used like the other parts of mm -hmm. the crop can be used and then whatever is left over could be used in making Yeah, so basically there are different components to the hemp plant. And I don't know that much about it, but I know there are, there's the shiv, which is the herd, and then there are bast fibers, which are the longer, stringier fibers. And I believe that's what get used for rope or for garments. So basically you separate out the bast fibers from the herd. You either grow hemp primarily for fiber or for seed. And the seed doesn't grow nearly as tall because it puts a lot more of the energy into the flowers and the seeds and the taller stuff is more for fiber, so those will be the 10 to 15 foot tall plants that you'll see, and that you're really just going for the length of the fiber in it. 
and that then gets processed into you know the fibrous products but either way whether it's seed or fiber you have the herd left over and it has from what i understand about the same physical properties regardless of which it's grown for sort of like what oscar meyer did with producing sausage right the joke was that the only thing they ever threw away was the squeal they used every part of the pig except the squeal and so trying to figure out how to do the same thing with hemp where you don't have 90% of the mass is something, oh, we don't need that, it's just byproduct. We're trying to figure out how you can make these diversified streams that all create revenue and all create products that are useful and have create jobs out of the same plant. So you can create seed and fiber and herd all from one plant. Now you've got three revenue streams coming from one plant. If you harvest it correctly, ideally you'd be able, you know, if the seed price goes in the tank, the fiber price may sustain the farmer and the herd might be a constant, you know, it's, I grew up on a dairy farm where you were always trying to diversify, like if you raised cows and pigs and milked cows, surely one of those was always doing okay. If the beef price was doing well, invariably the, the pig's price was low, but you basically broke even on everything because you had a diversified income stream. So. I think that's the same sort of mentality with hemp is trying to figure out how you diversify those revenue streams so that you're not trying to just hang your hat on one product. You know, farmers have done that for centuries. Fortunately, farming has gotten much more monolithic in terms of how people farm, but it used to be that farmers, they were almost completely self-sufficient. They raised all their own food when they had used horses instead of tractors. Basically, they didn't need any fuel. They didn't need anything from anybody. They had all of their labor and all of their food created by their work. So it's interesting to look at how we can learn from that, similar to the way that we can learn from the way that people used to build, where it was all locally sourced. I think learning from the way that farmers used to be self-sufficient and diversified in the way that they grew stuff. I mean, they understood about crop rotation, and they understood about erosion, they understood about prevailing breezes and sun and all these things that we don't have to care about anymore because you just fertilize it and put Roundup Ready plants on it and just go. And unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that rote knowledge about how to really listen to what is the most efficient for a sustainable practice. So for me, I think that's what's really interesting about building like this is that it hopefully takes a step back toward trying to understand we don't just have to air condition everything. We can create something with a lot of mass. I mean, one of the things that's really cool about the hempcrete is it's heavy. You know, it's, it's got a lot of weight to it. And so when you have this much weight, you've got 8,000 pounds of herd plus 4,000 pounds of lime. So you've got six tons worth of weight right here. So when that cools off at night, it stays cool when it heats up during the day and keeps you cool during the heat of the day. And then at night, that's when it actually heats up. So it basically creates this delay. So at night when it cools off, the mass actually gets warm and then the cool of the air takes the heat back out of it. And so instead of having to air condition everything, the theory is that it will be much more of a sort of naturally ventilated, naturally cooled environment. And we're actually gonna do a year's worth of energy testing on this house to confirm that because there's been very little research, very little data collected about hemp hempcrete and thermal mass. So we're going to embed sensors in the walls and whoever lives here, we're going to basically collect all the data, the temperature and humidity and uh, their energy usage for a year and compare that to the house next door, which is insulated with pink insulation and, you know, traditionally stick framed and just see how it breaks down. Mm. Because the theory is that this will perform much better because of the mass and because of the breathability of the hemp and all of that. So if you can start factoring that into the equation as well and not just have it be about, well, it costs more. Yeah, it costs more, but if it saves energy and it's more enjoyable to live in and it doesn't give you asthma and it doesn't burn and termites won't eat it so the structure lasts a lot longer, that's worth something in the long run. And the life cycle analysis of, of the house, that's worth something when compared to just, well, it was more expensive up front. I think we're getting to a point where we're getting sophisticated enough where people are understanding that that is a part of the equation. It's not just, well, that's more expensive. I mean, I think the interesting thing about this hemp is that if we had done this project last year, I st I've been planning this project for three years. So when I first started at North Limestone CDC, this was one of the first things I started looking at. And there were a couple times when I actually was at the point where I wanted to start construction. The ironic thing is that if we had actually started two years ago, 
this herd would have all come from New Zealand because really? there wasn't the pr production and processing capacity in Kentucky. And so this is actually Kentucky herd, whereas if we had done it a year or two ago, it would have been more economically feasible to get it from New Zealand. And I think that very fortunate we actually had to wait, not because of that reason, but for other logistical reasons, financing and finding a contractor that would hitch their wagon to our crazy star. <laughs> That's just one example of how insane the world economy is, that it would be cheaper to get herd from someplace 12,000 miles from here and ship it in a container than it would be to try and source it, get it sourced and processed within a couple hundred miles of here. And that's just, that's crazy, isn't it? I feel like if we can't figure out how to create an industry that creates a demand for the products that farmers are producing, then you're going to have the same circumstance that Canada had in the 90s when they had a big push growing hemp. The problem was there wasn't any demand for it. There wasn't any industry to buy it and process it. And so at first the prices were high, and then as farmers produced more and more and stockpiled more and more in their barns, the price plummeted. And so there were tons and tons of hemp that were just left to rot because the price was so low that it wasn't worth selling. You've got to have both sides of the thing advance sort of at the same rate so the demand and the production can advance so that you have a steady and stable increase in the growth of that market. And I think hopefully we can be a leader or a, one of the forward guard of showing how it could be more than just little bottles of CBD or hemp seeds to put on your salad or not that all those things aren't great but I think there's 8,000 pounds of hemp in this which equates to a, just under three acres worth of hemp that went into this little house. I know that there's about 12,000 acres being grown this year at least that's how much has been licensed so you could build a lot of houses from all that acreage that gets processed. So if we can create a demand for it and show how to implement it that'll just create jobs trucking processing the labor to place it people buying the houses so i think there'll be a lot of broad impacts it's just a question of how we do it at scale for more information on the north limestone community development corporation and on hempcrete visit their website at www.nolicdc.org Well, that wraps up this episode of Woven Roots, the Fiber Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed hearing about the innovative industrial hemp work of the Pine Mountain Settlement School and the North Limestone Community Development Corporation. Make sure to keep a lookout for our future podcasts on textile manufacturing, flax, and more stories from the Appalachian fiber world. And make sure to follow updates on Woven Roots and the Community Farm Alliance on our website, www.cfaky.org. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Woven Roots.